Hello, and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Provenance is a term more often associated with gastronomy than with security. But knowing where things come from is now recognised as vital to countering cyber threats. Since the SolarWinds attack, we've seen an increasing focus on supply chains, and especially software supply chains. Anyone developing and deploying software needs to know the origins of the components they use. How else can they check for compromises? Unverified software, or SOAP, software of unknown provenance, is just part of the problem. Data, too, is now coming under scrutiny. After all, if we can't trust the data, we can't trust the decisions it drives. This is very much the view of John Geeter, keynote speaker at this year's CrestCon Europe. John is co-founder of Archivist and co-chair of the IETF Supply Chain Integrity, Transparency and Trust Working Group. Security professionals need to balance challenges such as software and data integrity with the need to provide services to keep the business running, he argues. First, though, I asked John to rate the cybersecurity industry. Where are we right now in terms of keeping pace with the threats? It's an interesting unanswerable question. So it sounds a bit like a sort of end of history fallacy for me to put a, a number on the current state. Um, but I would certainly say we are getting better. So for, for wherever we are um, right now, it's been really notable in the past, let's say, three two or three years, I suppose, that the conversations about resilience and bringing industrial type learning and and real sort of business learning and processes and risk management into cyber um, has gone from very little and it was all desperately sort of opaque through to actually it's everyday conversation now. We know that there's a software supply chain. We know that there's an issue with um, sort of unknown data coming into our uh, into our, our, our assets. So um, where are we? I mean, we're not terribly good because we keep on getting attacked all the time, right? But um, but things are definitely getting better. And I think, you know, the pandemic having so much um, remote working, if anything good from the pandemic, I think that highlighted some of the issues. Uh, and then the generative AI thing really has woken people up to the idea that we've got to do something serious about the amount of data, fake or otherwise, that's uh, that's flying at us. So when you say the pandemic potentially has had an influence, what does that look like? Is it changing people's perceptions? Is it making them more aware of potentially what some of the risks are? Um, I don't know because I'm observing it from the outside, but I would guess um, that it's more the forced necessity of working these things out. A lot of things that have prevented progress, in my view, in, um, uh, in the security space in the last 25 years or, or more, um, is that often, to a small degree, you can put off advances or you can put off initiatives or you can put off um, sort of buying a, a, a solution simply by putting more brains on it or by slowing down. Right? There's a, a really heavy reliance often on manual processes or secondary checks and, and things like that to catch issues that really ought to be automated, but it was never quite worth it. Um, and once we all started working so remotely, not just you know thinking of comfy office workers who get to you know, have a 
a nicer cup of coffee with their with their morning meeting. But actually, you know, industrial workers, factory workers, the fact that we couldn't have a hundred people on a shop floor or, or or in a facility at the same time, that really, I think must have concentrated the mind on solving some of these remote issues um, and, and dealing with a sort of thinner crew on the ground. So I think that, that must have had something to do with it. When you say that we're getting better at security, and I know it's difficult to be measuring this in an objective way because there isn't an objective standard of what good security actually looks like other than the, oh, I've never been hacked, it won't happen to me, which, as we all know, is a fallacy. But at the same time, what we're seeing is that the threats have not diminished and if anything the threats continue to increase so actually if we'd stood still we'd gone backwards if that's not too torturous an analogy so we must be improving in order to stay at least in step with the threats and the threats are not reducing at all but are we are we one step behind the adversary where do you think we are well i think it depends who we are so some something that we've not done terribly well as an industry is to realize that you know, cybersecurity is a service to other aims. And what you're trying to do is keep a business running, basically. Um, and so it very much depends what that business does, what their risk is, or who's trying to attack them, and, and where their weak points are. Um, so obviously, you know, a, a wide spectrum and different progress in different areas. But I think the fact that we are noticing that now even is a is a step forward so um if you went to such places as the rsa show um or infosec or, you know, the big the big trade shows um as recently as five years or so ago everything kind of looked the same it was basically encryption and it basically looked like enterprise it security and that unfortunately for the sort of themes of infrastructure protection or for cloud first type operation or for any kind of modern networked collaborative or data-based big data type applications for all those kinds of applications it doesn't really work because it assumes that you have this central control and one IT administration team who reports to one company that has one risk appetite and one mission. And that ain't so anymore. You've got lots and lots of people doing a little piece of the puzzle and there's nobody is sort of greater or lesser than anybody else. They're all supposed to be working together to solve this problem. But many of the tools and techniques, especially with perimeter security, which I'm also glad to see finally is sort of on the wane, but still you know, very focused on perimeter security approaches to collaborative problems have historically made it kind of difficult to pass things across, pass the baton securely, and know at a system level that you're doing well. All of those kinds of realizations that actually hoarding secrets inside your little castle and keeping everybody out isn't the aim of the game in some cases. And actually what you need to be able to do is securely open up your castle in a proper and controlled and managed way. You open up your castle so that actually you can exchange data with your partners and be one plus one equals three uh, rather than one plus one equals data breach. Is that tendency to hoard information and to be quite insular one of the reasons that we've seen such problems in the supply chain, particularly the software supply chain, although the physical supply chain potentially is exposed as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at um, a lot of the basic principles of supply chain risk management, you want visibility, you want to know what's going on. You can't control something or fix it if you can't see it. And traceability and transparency in, in a lot of cases um, 
have been shown to help in the physical cases. You do inspections and, and, and things like that. Um, and it's starting to come in um, now with the digital supply chain too. Uh, in particular, um, when you look at uh, the software, you mentioned the software piece. So with things like um, Log4j, for example, a nice, easy, popular example, on the morning that that broke and it was all terribly sort of noisy and everyone was running around with their hair on fire, I can only imagine that there were hundreds or possibly thousands of people in security departments all, all, all around the world looking at this thing saying, well, gee, this is a problem, <laughs> but I have no idea where this thing is in my estate. I've got thousands of servers and they run thousands of different proprietary stacks and most of it's Java, so there's probably Log4j, but I don't know where it is. And this, um, the initiatives like software bills of materials and then sort of broader, um, more um, versatile sort of provenance and integrity standards like the ITF SKIT standard, what they're doing is, is quickly pushing this ability to actually share that information and look inside and say, well, actually, I as the risk owner, Mr. Whatever Utility Logo, I as the risk owner can look at this thing, I can quickly see what's inside the box, and I can take control of my own risk. I might still want the vendor to fix it, and I'll wait for a patch, and I'll do all of my... You know, well, I'm not proposing for a second we should throw away what we used to do. IT security is clearly very valuable, and it does work. It's just we need to do more on top of that. We need to add to that things like visibility and traceability and people taking responsibility for the digital assets and code and, and things that they put into other people's environments. And there have been some very high profile cases, but how, how big a risk is that, particularly where software is being constructed out of components that may not be verifiable or un unknown. Unknown. Soup. The, the, old, the old soup problem. Software of unknown provenance. Um, it's a huge problem. I mean, with it, so I was reading a report and, and forgive me, I forget whose report it was, um, but a report very recently from one of the, the bigger software security houses um, that every week 1.2 billion known vulnerable dependencies are downloaded from open source sources so from basically github and npm i would, I would imagine 1.2 billion that are already not at the point that they are brought into somebody's stack they are newly deployed they're already broken um, it's massive because th th this thing is not going to slow down we're not going to use less open source software we're not going to use fewer SaaS services to build our solutions because at a surface level, they're brilliant, they're, you know, they're cheap, they're effective, they work, I've got vendor choice, so I don't have any sort of obsolescence issues necessarily. Um, but it's growing and growing and growing and growing and actually software supply chain attacks, you know, third party software born attacks, are up almost 800% this year. It's eight times last year, and last year wasn't very quiet. So um, yeah, it's a it's a massive problem. Fortunately, you know, the the nice thing is, I think we I think it was always a massive problem. This is the the funny thing. Everybody, whenever you talk about security, everybody says, you know, this isn't new. We've been doing this since the sixties, and then somebody else pipes up and says, oh no, it was done since the nineteen tens, and then another person shows up and they quote Sun Tzu at you. Um, you know, nothing new under the sun, of course. Um, but only to say, you know, this, I think, um, this was always a big problem. 
and we didn't really realise. And now it's a big problem, and we do realise, and we've got a chance to get ahead of it again. It is growing, but we've we've recognised in time, I think. It's become a bit of a blind spot, and I don't know whether that's because the IT industry has always adopted a bit of a smoke and mirrors approach. They've tried to make things look very difficult and impenetrable to the outside person. But if you look at physical safety, and yes, of course, physical systems have been around for a lot longer, the idea of understanding where your materials come from, controlling the supply as far as possible, inspecting the components, visiting factories, these things have been done since Victorian times. Yes, modern health and safety legislation has accelerated that, and I'm sure the quality of components going into, say, a car or a railway engine today are vastly superior than they would have been in the 1950s. And we see that in accident statistics. But... I don't know whether it's a question that software has been boxed away and we've forgotten about it, or simply we, we are still in the 1950s in terms of the maturity of the industry, and we just need to get to that point of being in the 2020s. Well, it is objectively younger, so I suppose it must be. Um, a few things that are interesting on that. I mean, there's, there's always lessons that one industry can learn from another, and it disappoints me somewhat how little the security industry learns from the safety industry, because actually in many, many ways, they're, they're the same. Um, and so, and of course, you know, there will be people listening saying, I've been doing that for 30 years. And there, there are, there are some great people out there who do do this, but they're quite rare. And what I think we need to be doing is, is bringing this awareness to the mainstream so that it actually happens. Yeah, I was, um, when I worked for Talus, I was um, design authority on, on some of our products and I was legally responsible for the quality and safety of those things. And I had to sign them off that they weren't going to electrocute anybody or, or, or things like that. But that's unusual for a software company. And actually the software part of it was very minor. I was mostly vouching for the hardware and sort of electrical safety of the things. So we don't have that level of professionalism in software, unfortunately. Unfortunately, um, and so I guess uh, if you're talking about you know how how mature are we? I think we've realised that we need provenance in terms of that visibility. What's in the box? Have I got Log4j in my router? That's you. Know, we haven't quite, but I think we should rapidly come to a deeper idea of provenance, which basically is where did my stuff come from? Who gave it to me? Who thought this was a smart idea to to, to import this thing? That identity information on the origin of the stuff you're dealing with can and should in many cases include attestations about them as well so they can say i think this software is good somebody else can say i think that person's a very good software engineer and they're qualified to build nuclear centrifuge motor control units right and and that's that's a thing that's going to be a long way away but we are at the foothills of that at least in fact we almost need to go down another layer and say that person is qualified to assess the quality of the software. Yeah, all, all of those things that we have, right? We have test houses, we have kite marks, we have BSI for physical goods. And I mean, it always sounds very heavy. People probably groan when they hear that yeah, we, we need to have more kite marks and more testing and more so. I don't think we need to be as ridiculously heavy as a car or like a hedge trimmer with sharp edges for all software. Like it's perfectly reasonable for people to be run-of-the-mill software engineers just doing random software-y things. But I do think there needs to there need to be grades of quality of person and quality of job required to enter certain risk cases. And as you move into critical infrastructure, healthcare, defence, 
you could ask for a higher level of certification. Oh uh, yeah, and and as we say, you know, let's not um, let's not try to boil the ocean. But at the very least, we should be asking for a better standard um, and documentation of the provenance of the software. If we don't know how the person was qualified, we should at the very least know where we got it from. The other area, and it's potentially much, much bigger than software, is actually a question of data. Now, organizations depend so heavily on data and people are doing amazing things, creating data lakes, blending data sets together, pulling in third-party information, open source information, proprietary information, customer information, and doing some very clever things before we even get into the territory of AI and and machine learning and so forth. But that, again, raises the question that most organizations probably couldn't say with any degree of honesty that they actually know where the data comes from and where, in turn, that data was sourced. If you start to think about a data supply chain, what does that mean for the security of our organizations? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked, because that's actually my kind of my, my passion point, really. The software supply chain thing is really popular right now. It's kind of zeitgeisty, but it's, a, it's just a subset problem of, of everything else. Knowing the provenance of data is just incredibly important. Maybe it's another thing about the immaturity of the industry, that you know, we sort of knew we had to do software code reviews and so we tend to think about you know, how good is the software, does it have any bugs in it, does it have vulnerabilities. Um, but actually, if you take a broader view of risk, you can have perfectly good software that operates exactly as you want it to, but if you feed it bad data to operate on, it will give you bad answers still. Um, and even like with crypto, we, we have tended to lean on things like digital signatures and there's loads of certification and validation of the security modules and the crypto algorithms, the core math, and yet people are constantly breached and keys are constantly lost and certificates are constantly revoked. And the reason for that is, well, because there's a bigger problem. And a lot of those problems actually come down to the data you use to start those processes and, and, and manage them. And one of the reasons for that is because we made it so darn hard with the systems we have, with, you know, Computers were built with this perimeter model in mind, with the idea that once something's inside, it's good. And it's just never, ever been true. Um, so yeah, the, the, the ability to check the provenance of all the data coming in, that's invoices, that's AI training models, that's software, that's you know, anything coming through. The ability to very quickly say, where did this come from and do I trust them? That's what we're building with the IETF SKIT standard. That's where I spend most of my day job doing. And I think it's a, it's fantastically exciting and a really important problem to, to, to solve for people to get back control of what they're doing in their computer estate. That was part of the problem with trust models was the, the trust once you were inside the perimeter was absolute. Yeah. Yeah, soft underbelly. So how do we move away from that? The idea of zero trust architectures I find appealing. Um, there's a point at which it becomes unrealistic. You have to compartmentalize things. But um, zero trust architectures basically say, assume everything is broken, right? Try to have some redundancy, try to have some resiliency. Don't ever give anybody trust. Don't assume they're still okay, because they might have gone rogue in between the two questions, whatever. So in the case of when we get to data and and having a sort of zero trust approach to life, especially in, in cloud type organizations, you've got to start thinking really quite critically about, well, I've been using a file, I've been looking at it, I've been editing it. As soon as you put it down, next time you pick it up again, you need to check it. You need to make sure it is the same one that you put there and it hasn't been tampered with or maliciously replaced. Um, There's this whole talk to 
many of the listeners will probably know uh, what talk to me. So um, time of check to time of use problems where I look at it, it's okay, I put it down, I do two more steps in my protocol, and then I send this command into some access control or whatever. And in between those two steps, an attacker changes what I checked and they get to get their message through. That happens all the time. If you're storing your things in Amazon S3 and your bucket isn't properly secured, you need to check every single time you put the file there, you should test its provenance, you should test where it came from, timestamp it, whatever. Every time you pick it back up again, you should check it's the same one you put there. And at the moment, yeah, that soft underbelly thing, the total access thing, without having this sort of zero trust, or these very defensive principles, not just baked into software written by software people, but baked into processes for process business people, uh, it's going to keep on happening. Well, that's another example where we could draw from physical safety. There are machine tools, for example, where you would have to do exactly that. You would have to check, carry out a number of safety checks before you pick it up and use it, regardless of how recently you last used it. And the same with a vehicle. You know, a bus driver, to take a very simple example, has to go around and check the tires and the mirrors and those things before getting into the vehicle and putting passengers in it. And that sort of thing is routine in the physical world in safety critical industries. But again, we have safety critical software or mission critical software where we don't do that. Yes, shame, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, quite. There does seem to be a growing sort of better together collaborative um, spirit in the cyber industry at the moment uh, with data sharing and, and things like that. And I guess maybe it wouldn't be too hard to just expand that to go a bit multidisciplinary and say, actually, let's let's get the really experienced safety folks in. Because they are you know, they are around. Some of them are in the IETF groups. Right? It's not like we don't know them or, or, or we don't like each other. It's just the conversation isn't as broad as it should be, I think, to learn from each other. Going back to your point about data, though, just looking at where the origins of data are and there are plenty of suppliers now there are organizations that exist to create data and there are other organizations that exist because they capture data if you're then supplying that data onto someone else what sort of thing would you be looking for to prove the providence of that information yeah yeah well that, that's a great question so i um i'm very amoral in that uh, in that way i don't think there is very much in the way of objective good um it depends you know Again, this idea is security, trust, integrity, providence, whatever whatever it is, they're all in service of something else. So it really does depend on what you're doing. So let's take recently after the coronation, um, somebody made some really quite high quality um, AI generated art of Charles and Camilla dancing it up with cigars and martinis and, 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 and other such things. Nothing wrong with it, it's a piece of art. And if they put it up and, and make it available to people and they say, this is my lovely art parody of the royal family, then cool, then I would call that good. That's a good thing. If they offered it up for sale to Reuters and said, this is a long lens true photograph of a thing that happened and you should print it immediately, well, then I would call that bad. Not because the image is bad in itself, but because it's being falsely portrayed, it's being sold with false pretenses and whatever else. So what I would call good is slightly more abstract. I would say that we ought to be moving towards a place where it, the whole context of this is supply chain, right? We're moving things from one place to another. And we have to realize that moving a piece of data, whether it's a software or whether it's an image or who knows what, whether it's just a tweet, we're moving anything from one domain of control into somebody else's business 
it should be checked and attested and validated and verifiable just the same as if you were receiving a physical good, particularly so that you take responsibility for your own actions. So if I'm selling this thing as art, I can attest that. I can say, this is mine and I am putting it up for the market as an art piece irrevocably saying this is mine I did it and this is the timestamp and I can't take it back anymore now if somebody prints it in the newspapers <laughs> that's their fault right but if I put it up and I say I took this with a long lens photograph and here's my modified EXIF data and I've done all these things and, and it's a bona fide thing well they should be able to point back at that and say bloody hell you know they, they, those guys those guys lied to me I picked this up in good faith I checked it I verified it, it was all good it's their fault. And once you get that, then you can start to move to a point where, well, I just don't take any data from anybody unless it has this provenance attached to it. And so at the very least, I know who made it, where it came from, and when it was made, and preferably also what it was made for, because then I'm really in control of my own risk, and I can choose whether this thing is good for me because I'm a gallery owner, or it's bad for me because I'm a newspaper editor. How worried should we be about bad actors manipulating data? enormously. So many of these attacks are easily facilitated by people being able to manipulate things in the middle of some process. It's just, I can't think of anything other than enormously. It's just, it's so easily preventable as well. I think something that struck me in recent years is when we talk about security and sort of cryptographic security and things like that, we have this triangle, the CIA triangle. And it feels, again, for historical reasons, We've focused an awful lot on the sea. We're really good at keeping secrets and keeping people out. I don't think, certainly for the modern context, I don't think we spent enough time on the eye. We haven't spent enough time looking after the integrity of data. And the problem is, you know, the, the old issue absolutely was secrets. If you, do, if you want to keep your code book secret or where your ships are, brilliant. That was the right problem to solve at that time. But the issue now that we have everything is connected and everything is multi-party and everything's networked and everything's in the cloud, is that, well, you're intending to share that data. So even, you know, of course, there's encryption on the links and you don't want people to fire sheep you in the pub, but you know, fundamentally, you are sharing that data. It is not encrypted for the parties who are allowed to see it. So the big problem now actually is, am I getting a good signal from my partners? Is this data high integrity? Is it what they intended to send me or has it been modified in the middle? And that's the piece where, when I say enormously, and it's a huge risk and it can be all modified. The reason for that is because the naive way of putting everything together, where we just stick SSL on either end and hope for the best, that kind of extends the perimeter model. It says, well, if I receive the information over this fat pipe, I can trust it back in my soft underbelly. But many attacks that we've seen from, you know, supply chain attacks are very deep, right? So one person infects somebody else, infects somebody else, gets into operations, infects a fourth, fifth party, whatever. What we've seen with a lot of these things, um, especially the sort of botnetty ones, the IoT ones, is that there's nothing wrong with the SSL. There's nothing wrong with the keys. The pipe, the connection is safe. The problem is there was a bug in the firmware that allowed an attacker to take control of it and send you extremely secure wrong messages. That's the piece that you know, we need to have a bit more of a nuanced view on, and that's why 
provenance is, is and integrity are, are, are so key right now. So what then should an official in an organisation do to deal with this, whether they're a chief data officer, chief information officer, chief security officer, or potentially even chief risk officer? All risk is risk. All, all business risk is risk. And um, I should always caveat when given the chance that cyber isn't the biggest issue necessarily to a business. If, if you're running out of cash, that's probably a bigger issue and risk to manage than getting a really hot cyber stance, for example. So I totally understand these people are busy and they have priorities that aren't um, all about this. But on the other hand, actually, that's a, a good thing because you can roll this into the same prioritized risk structure. What, what I think people um, should be doing is doing their standard risk reviews, looking at their exposure, looking at sort of impact um, possibilities and so on that I'm sure they do very well right now already. Just with that additional insight, where in my organization is data entering where I'm not in control of it? You know, if, if, if my finance department's exchanging official documents and things, we have software that allows you to do that through a portal very like securely and you have everything tracked. But we know in reality an awful lot of these things happen with red lines going through email boxes and through Dropbox and through, oh goodness, this tool isn't working right now, so here's a WhatsApp file transfer. And finding all those places, not just from the network security kind of shadow IT I'm losing all my secrets point of view, not just from the inbound sort of Trojans and viruses and things are coming in, but actually simple files that lead to business decisions are a risk vector. And you need to be looking at that and finding where you're vulnerable and prioritizing, adding these kind of supply chain insight, integrity and provenance to, to those processes. John Geeter on how CISOs need to see data as one of the risk factors facing their organisations and how they need to pay attention to both data and software integrity as well as confidentiality. That, though, is all for this special episode of Security Insights. Our CrestCon coverage will continue with an interview with Crest President Roland Johnson. And, of course, our regular episodes will be released every other Thursday. In the meantime... Do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon or Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Listener.